Welcome to Long Story Short. My name is Shanta Pukler. I'm president of Man Group, and I'll be hosting a podcast series for investment professionals. Every year, we're asked by our clients and investors globally all kinds of questions from data science to monetary policy, the effect of inflation, how to trade or better risk manage portfolios. It's the goal of this podcast to have wide ranging and deep conversations on some of the most difficult topics that we face today. So for this edition of Long Story Short, we're focusing on the bugbear topic of inflation, a topic that's been on everybody's mind. We're seeing inflation levels that we haven't seen in decades, and many investment professionals, unless they're on the older side, haven't had direct experience managing portfolios and dealing with investment problems in the face of elevated levels of inflation. So it's a very relevant and timely topic. With me today, I have Tone Dreisma from the Man Solutions Group. Tone runs portfolios specifically designed to incorporate and defend against inflation and also has written both academic and practitioner papers analyzing and trying to understand inflation. So he's well-armed with facts and opinions on the subject. Uh, welcome to Long Story Short, Tone. Thank you. Thanks, Shanta. So let's start with a little bit of a level set of, of sort of where are we in the current inflationary cycle and, and what do the markets say going forward currently? The profile of consensus expectations is very clear across the world in developed markets. Um, inflation is set to peak in the US and the UK at around 8% in the first half of this year. Um, and then eases back to normal levels by the end of next year. So it's quite a benign consensus view of, you know, after this big inflation spike, things will go back to normal. And when you say normal, do you mean 1.5% normal or 5% normal? 2% uh, normal. 2% normal. Central bank target normal okay. is, is what's widely expected. Okay. Um, and that may, that may prove too optimistic in our view. Mm. So let's talk about that. I mean, you and your colleagues have, have thought of a lot about this and written a lot about inflation. What's your view of both duration and levels of inflation? Yeah, our, our view, our base case, I should say, uh, because it's all about probabilities, of course, always. Uh, but our base case is very different from the consensus. And we have two reasons for this, one small reason and one big reason. Mm. The small reason is the following. We have a model where we use public information on oil prices and used car prices and, and ask rents and things like that. Sort of an input model. That, yes, yeah. where we know how that with, with a lag feeds mm. into inflation numbers. Mm. And there we get a higher inflation number by year end than the consensus expects. So our forecast for this year is around 6% inflation by year end in the mm. US, for instance. And that's about a percentage point higher than the consensus. So that's a small reason for mm. us to expect higher inflation. A much bigger reason um, is our judgment that the four-decade-long regime of disinflation has ended. And that judgment is based on a study of history. And we looked at history and we find that regimes are very persistent. Mm. And then at the end of a regime, you reach the extremes, the logical extremes of that regime. And in this case, that was zero rates, massive debt levels, very large inequality across the world, meaning that the end of a regime, the extremes, lead to a policy reaction where everything changes. And the policy reaction is clear. Now it's about fiscal, not monetary policy, and MMT-type policies around the world. 
that's one uh, key reason. Then there's average inflation targeting, of course, that central banks have started to adopt. Um, and policy goals such as addressing inequality, addressing climate change, they're all inflationary. Mm. The final thing that's also inflationary is repairing or, or deglobalization. People have now gotten to learn that global supply chains are very fragile mm. for a variety of reasons. So all these things are inflationary. So for us, this means that we've entered a longer period of higher and more volatile inflation mm. going forward. Some of the arguments that I've heard and read about are around base effects rolling off and mm. supply chain repairs and sort of post-COVID all fixing inflation. How do, you, how do you incorporate that in your logic? I think that's the consensus view, and it's really interesting. It's obvious that the base effects will roll off. Mm. So for just mathematically, mathematically, for mm. the oil price to keep on having the same impact on inflation, it mm. needs to you know go up exponentially mm. to have the same year-over-year -year price rise. But we strongly believe that's beside the point. Mm. Our study of historical inflationary periods shows really convincingly that every inflationary period starts very specifically. It could be war spending. It could be an oil price crisis. It could, it's a very specific start, and then it becomes a generalized inflation. Through it, contagion or, or through, through what mechanism? Yeah, mostly wages uh -huh. so, and inflation expectations. Mm -hmm. So people get used to this new, higher level of inflation and start to demand uh, compensation for it. Mm. And as a result, you get into you get a spiral. feedback loop. Yeah. And you don't need strong unions or wage indexation for that to happen. Mm. And this time around, of course, we all know labor markets are very tight. Uh, there's a shortage of housing mm. and there's been underinvestment in commodities. Mm. But we believe this specific story, partly driven by base effects, is now already moving into a very generalized inflation which is the pattern we've always seen in past inflations. Got it. I can't help but wonder how the recent events in Ukraine add or subtract from this calculus. It's um, very sad events, of course, um, but from an economic point of view, it just makes the problem worse. It's stagflationary, higher inflation, lower growth. Explain the lower growth part in your eyes. All right, so wars are often inflationary. Yeah partly because of deficit funding of war spending, partly because of higher demand for commodities, mm. and partly because of the supply disruption. Mm. And in this case, the supply disruption for commodities is absolutely massive, right? And we've all heard about... Primarily around energy and food? Energy or? and food, and then there's neon and yeah. Some raw materials. Yeah. And so it just exacerbates mm. um, the commodity bull market. And that is not good for growth, right? Mm. It's, 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 it's a tax on companies and on people. Mm. So the impact is clearly stagflationary. And also the second round impact is for higher inflation for longer because central banks at the margin will be a bit dovish, mm. right? Because they'll try to support economies and support markets despite higher inflation. So it's a clear stagflationary impact. Mm. So what's a central banker to do? I mean, now they're kind of caught between a rock, a hard place, and yet another hard place. It's very, very hard. They're in a quandary because rates are zero. Mm. They're still doing QE, mm. and inflation is 8%. How do you normalize rates to tame inflation without creating a lot of damage? Mm. Um, what's a central bank to do? Well, they shouldn't start from here, right? <laughs> you, could, you, you could say. Uh, and it just makes it very, very hard. And it leads to something else. It leads to something else, which is proper inflationary periods last a long time. Mm. And they last a long time 
Because the only real cure for inflation is the tough medicine of austerity and very high rates. Mm. And early on in an inflationary episode, policymakers are not ready to do it, right? right? They're like, they're like, they hope it goes away or they think it goes away. And the path to the end of an inflationary period is that first the inflation itself creates a lot, a lot of damage. Yeah. So much damage that at the end they'll say, oh, all right, cycle reset, create a recession, Volcker mm. in 79, 80, yeah. 81 being the extreme example. It's another argument why this period is far from over in our view. Mm. So let's shift a little from the level and the expectation to the effect on asset prices. So you've, you've written about that, um, done some really, I think, quite high quality research around that. Equities, bonds, what's the story and how these assets behave? And then we'll get into some of the more you know, commodity and other assets. But I'm curious at a high level what your research looks like, how you did it, and how mm. we can unpick it. We did a major study, indeed. It was very nice. It was a challenge because a lot of people have been publishing about what happens in inflations, mm. and they look at data for the last 20 years because that's what's easily available. And you get to the wrong conclusions completely. So we went back 100 years. We looked at three countries, not just the US. We looked at the US, UK, and Japan. We used monthly data for headline inflation, and we defined an inflationary period with perfect hindsight. Mm -hmm. So there's no forecast in there. We just looked at, hey, when did inflation peak at a level above 5%? We identified the major peak quantitatively as the end of the period. And then the start of the period was the last local trough or the last time you breached through 2%. And thus, we found 34 inflationary episodes in the last 100 years in these three countries. Uh, they lasted on average uh, just over two years. And because we also have data on 50 strategies and asset classes, we could draw some really strong conclusions. So that's, that's the method. Lots of conclusions, but the really short summary is that all these periods may perhaps be quite different, but the pattern is very clear. Mm. Equities and bonds do badly, mm. and commodities is very, very good. Mm. Um, diversification is key. Take, for instance, gold, the go-to asset class for mm. a lot of people in inflation. It's pretty good. The average annualized real return of gold in inflations is 13%, plus 13%. Sounds great. But the hit rate is only two-thirds. Mm. So it's not all. it didn't always outperform. So equities and bonds have performed badly during past inflations. Um, commodities have been much better. Mm. The go-to uh, asset of choice amongst commodities, of course, in people's mind, is, is gold. And gold indeed has done well during past inflations, on average plus 13% annualized real performance. But the hit rate isn't very good. The hit rate has been only two-thirds uh, in these past inflations. And uh, what has been much better is a diversified basket of right. commodities. Plus 15% annualized real return in the past, and a 100% hit rate. In all inflations, it has generated positive return. Uh, and, and thus, one of the strong conclusions uh, from our study of the past is that diversification is key as it often is. Mm. And, and what about synthetic assets, the, you mm. know, quantitatively constructed assets, hedges? What did you see when you analyzed those sorts of facets? Yes, so one thing I forgot to say, actually, uh, as another general conclusion, that, it's, that there's no magic solution. Yep. It's, a, it's a beautiful but very tough conclusion, uh, that is that it's very hard to find an asset class or a strategy that does well in inflations and outside, and outside inflations. 
to your precise question, trend and cross-sectional momentum. So uh, trend following in futures and cross-sectional momentum to related strategies are very strong, consistently strong. It does take some time for them to morph into what they need to be, logically. To recognize the transition. Indeed, and indeed so far, maybe we'll get to that uh, later, but so far in this inflation that started in Feb of 2021, trend and cross-sectional momentum haven't been that good yet. They're, they've been okay, but yeah. not as good as the past would have suggested. So their, yeah. their time may come. Yeah. Um, and then, so that's a standout conclusion in terms of what you call hedges or synthetic strategies. Mm. Other strategies that have, to, have been good uh, within equities are the quality style mm-hmm. and also high beta, not low beta, but high beta. The big surprise is value. Mm-hmm. Value, we too believe that there's a good chance that in this specific inflation, from this starting point, the value style should do well. But historical results don't bear that out. Mm-hmm. A big surprise. And that's because value changes through time. It's a different beast, if you like, at different points in time. Interesting. And what about inflationary environments did you find, if anything, that relates to cross-asset correlation and sort of the correlation structure because it's not just what might outperform that we care about, it's sort of how to defend our portfolios through diversification and the benefits of that diversification. It's probably one of the most important results of our study and that is that the correlation structure between traditional assets is likely to change. The world, if you look at what the biggest asset allocators in the world are exposed to, they're exposed to equities and bonds by well over 80% on average in, in, in our analysis. And that's been the right asset choice, right? It's been brilliant the last few decades. They've both gone up yeah. at different times, robust portfolio, brilliant returns. That's been the norm the last four decades. It has been you know, far from the norm in the very long history of time when inflation was higher and more volatile. When deflation is the major threat, the correlation between equities and bonds is negative. Great. And that's where we have been. When inflation is the major threat, it all it all changes. I.e. positive? Yes. So equities and bonds go up and down at the same time. So you get a much more volatile portfolio. And if history is any guide, they both, they both go down at the same right. time. The big question is when, from what level of inflation, does that occur? And I don't think there's a good theoretical answer to that question. But there's a very strong empirical answer to that question. And that is 2.5% headline CPI. If the three-year average is the way we cut it, of the headline CPI is above 2.5%, stocks and bonds are positively correlated and a negative correlation goes away. Where are we now? We're exactly there. We're exactly at 2.5% three-year moving average. And of course, with time, bigger numbers coming in, smaller numbers falling out, we may well be on the cusp of a change in the correlation structure major challenge to all of us. And I'm just guessing I don't have the number at the tip of my tongue, but year to date, I think we've seen some breakdown in that historical correlation. Completely. Um, in both From both equities and bonds, depending on how you measure it. This is true. Up to the 11th of Feb of this year, mm. um, which is when the Russia-Ukraine threat became much more imminent. Mm. Uh, this was this Friday speech by, by President Biden. Up to that point, yeah, the correlation structure had changed because inflation and hawkish central banks was the theme. Mm-hmm. And equities and bonds both went down after that because stagflation has become a bigger threat in the minds of markets. 
you've seen bonds rally at times and equities go down. So this is to be determined. Exactly, and, yeah. and that's markets, right? Don't move in a straight line. Yeah. Um, and that's another strong conclusion. When inflation is low, it's not very volatile. When inflation is high, it's also much more volatile, and that creates more macro opportunities and risks. From the history, kind of going back to the beginning of the conversation, you must have been able to collect data on the length of inflationary periods, the severity. Is that all over the map, or are there some consistent themes that come out from that analysis? Yeah, the, the consistent theme, there are differences. Mm-hmm. You can learn from history, and you know, history rhymes, doesn't repeat, all right. that. Uh, Mark Twain, uh, there's always a Mark Twain quote for anything. So periods have been quite different, but the strong theme is that once you enter an inflationary period, it is persistent, and it takes two and a half years on average, and it ends with a recession. So if it's longer, it just means the the actual recession, the cycle reset, is later. So you get the pain of both the inflation for the two and a half years and then the recession for one to three or whatever years thereafter. Yeah, and then off you go, and maybe I, I give an example or two so after 1945, it's quite, there's some parallels. Mm. It's quite interesting. After 1945, there was a lot of pent-up demand, just like now, post yeah. the COVID crisis. A lot of rebuilding had to happen. Just Infrastructure like spending. And, exactly. Yeah. And there was financial repression. There was high inflation, but rates were kept low, mm. um, uh, so as not to kill the cycle. And it was a very volatile period, and there was a recession every three years because of the impact of inflation, not rates. So high volatility, short cycles, and hot cycles. And that it looks like we're on that path right now. The even better parallel, I truly believe, is the 60s and the 70s. Most people will tell you, no, you know, it's completely different now. Uh, but I think we're going through it in an accelerated fashion. Late 60s, you had guns and butter, the social spending and the war spending that led to a brewing inflationary problem. And in 1973, OPEC crisis, it just cemented the inflation problem for longer. And we've had the guns and butter equivalent, COVID fiscal spending. And sadly, I think the Russia-Ukraine crisis can play the role of the OPEC oil price crisis, where it cements, it just accelerates the problem, makes it bigger for longer. So let's maybe wrap up here and ask you to comment a little bit on what would make you change to the positive side, not to the negative side, your views of near-term inflationary outcomes? Yes, and nothing is certain, and it's all about scenarios and probabilities. One thing, we're watching a bunch of things, and let me go through them. One critical thing we're watching is policy. These regimes are driven by the prevailing policy at the time in history, and today austerity is not the prevailing policy. Austerity is dead. But there's a French presidential election coming up, um, for instance, and one of the candidates, one of the leading candidates, is all about austerity. Maybe she wins, probably not, but if she does, it's a sign, right? Midterm elections in the US, even more important, perhaps austerity becomes a theme. I wouldn't expect it, but that's one thing we're watching. Secondly, we're watching what the market is telling us. Stock-bond correlations is the first thing that will move, is the most convincing thing that will move. If that turns positive, like it did earlier this year, that's a clear sign that inflation is the major threat. If it doesn't, we'll have to be nimble and analyze the situation. And then finally, of course, the fundamentals of labor markets. The unemployment rate is an all-time low in the Eurozone since the Euro was introduced. It's below 4% in the US. It's 
labor markets are tight everywhere. Lack of housing, lack of labor, lack of commodities. We'll just keep on watching that and that may change, but I don't see that at the moment. Thanks very much for joining us today, Tone. Uh, it was a pleasure. And stay tuned for further episodes of Long Story Short. Until then, from Man Group, I'm Shanta Pukler for Long Story Short. <laughs>